0: WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. Hi, this is Elmore Leonard. I'm I'm listening to Film Sociology, and and, uh, it's, it's a real program. It's great. It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the Multiplex in the Art House. What's new on video and streaming, and you might also hear about some dead people we like. We don't have time for dead people we don't like. Anyway, this is film sociology, where you'll find out what's the next cinematic marvel. It was unbelievable. And what's just a movie? Shut up! My God, you have no freaking life. Okay, here's your host and my dad, Matthew Sosie. All right. <laughs> Film lovers, welcome to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's msocey, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Soci. So, of course, this is available as a podcast, it's also available on iTunes, and like all of the shows, all the podcasts here at WFYI, they're available on Spotify. A little extra intro today, that is, of course, the theme from Enter the Dragon, music by Lalo Schifrin. It's a big movie week, it was a big movie week at the Sosi House because of the release on Criterion of the 7-disc box set. Bruce Lee, his greatest hits, and we'll get to that in a little bit, and of course grab a pencil afterwards, and we'll hear what, uh, I'll read off what you've been uh, watching over this past week. But I want to start with a couple of film, a couple of new films that came out. And uh, man, it was a uh, it was a busy day uh, on the day that I watched uh, this particular set of films. But uh, and I'll try to do them in chronological order. But uh, opening this weekend, courtesy of IFC Films, is the drama The Painted Bird. A almost three-hour black and white drama set in a uh, Eastern European country. We're never told exactly what it is during World War II, and it follows the plight. D- Dickens would have said this guy, went, this kid went through too much. Um, his parents leave him with a relative who dies. The house burns down, and this this sad young boy. And kudos to the young actor who has to endure being in just about in every frame of this film, um, going from one. Misadventure, And I shouldn't say misadventure, but, but going from one household to another with just a myriad of horrible things happening to him. And that is not involved. And not all of these involve the Nazi Party. Um, the, this is a film that and I know it's based on a very controversial Polish novel. Was, the author uh, said it was initially it, back in the 60s was autobiographical. It was later proven that that was false. But man this is this was a tough ride to watch. Uh beatings, mutilation, not all of it happening to this kid. Uh sodomy, uh bad things, just shootings. It it is a rough rough ride like I said, almost 3 hours long. And it's it's a film and I I like the uh the jerking around of filmmakers like Lars von Trier, but this is a film that has that rides that line on are we trying to show the randomness of what happens in in life and and also it just feels like the the director the writer and director is just kind of jerking your chain quite a bit and it feels like a chain a chain jerking um i think if stacy studeville was here she would say bleep that guy so uh anyway it's it's not for everybody yeah, uh, you see some familiar faces. It's almost a silent movie as well. Very minimal uh uh dialogue in this film. But you see familiar faces like Udo Kerr, who who has a uh, and, and usually there's like one sequence and that's about it. He he plays a very jealous husband who is, beats his wife when he thinks that she's looking at something else. Takes the the man who he thinks is the object of his wife's affections and cuts out his eyes with a spoon. Yeah. Artistically done. Um, you also see familiar faces like Stellan Skarsgård, uh, Barry Pepper, Harvey Keitel. Um, it looks great, beautiful black and white photography, beautiful footage of uh, of the European countryside. But man, it is a slug to get through, and and probably, especially in in the last few months since we've been cooped up, probably not the best choice. So um, I've warned you, if you if you're into. Pushing the Boundaries, um, it's. I don't think it's a great film. It's well-made, but I, it's one of those, it's really well-made, I just don't think I can sit through it again. And kudos to the young man who, who plays the lead in this. Um, so looking for something shorter and lighter, but not that light, is the Australian melodrama Dirt Music. And this features... Um, Kelly MacDonald, who we all know for everything from uh, Brave and No Country for Old Men, among others, she uh, is a single mom uh, with a fisherman boyfriend in Western Australia. The relationship is stuck. She meets a younger guy played by Garrett Hedlund, who's also a poacher of her boyfriend's fishing area. And uh what happens when that triangle becomes a little twisted uh the the Garrett hudland character Lou was a musician. The film plays quite a bit with flashbacks, and you see quite a number of you get to, as the film goes on, you learn more about Lou's character uh he has lost his family who keeps popping up as if they're still there in his mind and they they kind of dip into that well a little too much uh for my taste so and it, and I'm not saying that you should pay attention uh more I just say this is one you don't want to fold laundry to uh you actually want to pay attention to what's going on but even even that that aspect of it um I think it dips in too too much. Nice performances and nice chemistry between McDonald and Headland, um, and and it does follow the the and I use the term melodrama. That is, it is not a bad term. This is not a. This is not a dig on. This is what the film is about uh, about love and love lost and two people hopefully getting together and they just miss it. And, th- and that covers the dots. And there's gorgeous countryside of Western Australia. But uh, the, the trope of uh, flashbacks emerging in front of you, just like I said, one too many times for my taste. So anyway, I watched those back to back and uh, I... I We'll get to the uh, Bruce Lee box set in a little bit, but I'll get through what else I watched uh, this week. Um, Last Friday, uh, I got home early, thank uh, thank goodness, and uh, Emma and I uh, had a triple feature. She had never seen Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, and she liked that very much, as do I. I know um, Sofia Coppola got raked over to Coles a little bit about this. It's not the first time we've had a period piece film with... In this case, '80s music. Um, I would say, if you're an art house fan, you like Marie Antoinette. If you're a multiplex crowd, you liked A night's Tale. Same, same, uh, same method as far as period film, modern music. So, anyway, we we re, we watched that. I, I had watched this. Um, I think it was earlier this year because it was a there's a Kirsten Dunst uh, Blu-ray double feature that and the 1994 uh, Little Women. Um, we revisited Robots at my daughter's expense. Uh, m- my my Emma loves this film and does not care what anybody says. Uh, this was one that she latched on to at a very young age. Um, watching it I think what bugged me was there uh, early on was the I I grew very weary of animated films that had to have pop culture references and and I'm Mr. pop culture reference but you know uh, a robot dancing the Britney Spears and a bunch of robots dancing to James Brown at the end it's it's kind of low hanging fruit for my taste it still looks cool and um Emma loves the voice. I mean, there's it's a strong list of voice actors, uh, Ewan McGregor, Greg Kinnear, Halle Berry, uh, Robin Williams, Jim Broadbent. um, And and it's one of those I I think it's also no matter what Robin Williams did animated wise, it was never going to match Aladdin. And I and I know he did other animated films that he did this and, of course, most notably Happy Feet, but does not even come close. But it does look cool. And I got some dad daughter time and I, I I occasionally try to do old movie night on Fridays, whether my family jumps on it with me or not. And uh, I kind of just pulled an audible for the Friday night uh, choice. And I picked Charlie Chaplin's The Kid. Um I forgot that it was only under an hour, and uh, but it's still a lovely film to watch, and great chemistry between Coogan and and Chaplin. So that was that was last Friday. Um, <laughs> as I was going through, and like, and like I said, I'll get to I'll get to the Bruce Lee box set a little bit. But there was a uh, as I'm going through my notes, um, there was a a day where at the household where all three of us, especially Emma and I, were were stressed out. Not at each other, but we had had stressful days. And we had talked about, you know, we were constantly talking about films and or artists. And because of the West Wing, Emma really liked uh, Janine Garofalo. And she knew of Garofalo's voice from Ratatouille, but this was her first time seeing it. And I had brought up. So I've showed got to show my daughter, because we needed it, the truth about cats and dogs. Um when when Uma Thurman or is playing the sidekick and Janine Garofalo is your lead. But uh it still enjoy it and uh it, this was one that uh, my buddy Laura Jansen and I watched when we were both in the Chicago suburbs and it's fun at a point th- there's certain films now that uh, my daughter will see a certain character or a certain behavior and point and say that's that's you and there's a couple guys that respond to Uma Thurman like her like her father probably would, so anyway, got to revisit that. And with that in mind, last night as a palate cleanser after a, a harsh Polish film and a Australian melodrama, we did a double feature of Reality Bites and Summer School. Now, Reality Bites also has, a, it's of course Ben Stiller's uh, directing film with a uh, directing film, uh, who he also appears in it. It's a, a 90s slacker screwball comedy with Winona Riders torn between friend and uh, Mr. Cool Guy Ethan Hawke and uh, businessman Ben Stiller. Janine Garofalo, Steve Zahn are also in this. And uh, this was a film that. Uh, my buddy Laura and I reconnected with because we didn't have films to talk, we didn't have anybody to talk about movies with. And uh, anyway, so that uh, always holds a special place and it still holds up. It's, uh, I, I was concerned that I would reach an age where 20 uh, somethings who have are trying to move on in life, I th- probably didn't resonate with me, although this one did. I remember not being a fan of Saint Almost Fire in my teens, uh not being a fan of Slacker when uh, Richard Linklater's film when that came out. But this one I think it's it's more of a screwball comedy than a slacker film. Uh it just happens to have the 90s uh, uh grooming and and costumes. So Anyway, that worked out well. And then uh, Summer School. Summer School. And I I wanted to watch this earlier because of Carl Reiner, who directed Summer School. who had passed away, of course. And this was a film. uh, This was the first big film starring Mark Harmon, who had already done TV. And there was a brief stretch where he was uh, starring in films. And he plays a gym teacher who's forced to teach Summer School. And... I, uh, this came out in the summer of 87 and it has a special, this is another film that has a special place in my heart because, um, my, my dear darling friend, Quentin, when I, who I met that summer at the international thespian conference at Ball State, um, my buddy Jason Beckman and I kind of fawned over her the way chainsaw and Dave fawn over Anna Maria. And so nicknames were born and, uh, so anyway, I I think of Quinn and I think of my buddy Jason when I watch this film. Watching revisiting it with Emma, she liked it and uh and not just because she liked to look at 80s Mark Harmon, but it was one of those that it was it was a little boddier than your average John Hughes film but not as raunchy as the R-rated horny teenager films of the 80s like Porkies and Hard Bodies. So it just kind of hit that sweet spot. You have uh, and, and uh, Emma got introduced to young versions of Kirstie Alley, Courtney thorne Smith, um, Shawnee Smith, uh, yeah, and and Mark Harmon, of course. So that was that was enjoyable. So we had a, we had a good day on that. Okay, so Criterion, the Criterion Collection, put out a seven disc collection called Bruce Lee: His Greatest Hits. Now. I, 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 as it was at the beginning of the pandemic when this was announced that they were going to release it. And there's a, f- a fun little, inv- a fun thing happening to me all summer long. So I really, really wanted to get this. Um I grew up on the Bruce Lee films and the fact that Criterion was going to give it the treatment, which means it was going to be chock full of goodies and it was going to look good and it was going to sound good. And, uh. I I produce a podcast uh, when I'm not here at WFYI. It's uh, called Taking Care in Business. Hello, ladies. And uh, anyway, the the check for that podcast had arrived at the right time. So the combination of that check arriving and the fact that uh, the criterion – oh, and by the way, Barnes & Noble are doing uh, half-off criterions throughout the rest of the month of July – uh, there you go. But uh, Criterion put out a half-off uh, special, and I purchased the Bruce Lee box set. Very excited. It wasn't coming out until, well, I was July 14th was the release date. And uh, so I, I, I pre-ordered, and I kept – they don't take your money right away. I was ready for them to take my money. They kind of shut up and take my money. I had to do checkbook math all summer – until and I, I wondered if there was going to be a delay or if it was going to be take long, because I, I had ordered some mystery science theater box sets from Shout Factory, and that took it normally took I think uh seven business days or and then they pushed it to fourteen business days, and eventually I got an an email, a mass email or a generic email that the, that Shout Factory sends out to people who order say, um, sorry for the delay." Thank you for your patience, and the stuff did arrive, but uh I kept waiting and waiting and then finally uh about a week and a half ago got a confirmation email and they took my money but I was ready for them to take my money immediately because I trust them so anyway if you're listening criterion, thank you, but yeah, you could take my money sooner if you'd like and I never thought i'd say that okay uh so this is a a seven disc uh, collection, and uh, you can go to the film app to read my review of uh of this box set. But uh, I grew up in the time when there were kung fu movie shows on television where you'd get the badly dubbed uh, films that were not starring Bruce Lee. They started the ones that... Uh, the Bruce Plotation films were quite a bit of them. But um, as I was revisiting these films, the the four, the five films, the four films that were completed and then the botched job that is Game of Death, which I'll get to in a moment, um, I realized... That James Dean had his three films. John Cazell had his five films, all of them, by the way, best picture nominees or winners. That's, that's a great stat and a great piece of trivia. And Bruce Lee had done a whole lot. If you get a chance, um, check out the ESPN document, 30 for 30 documentary about Lee called Be Water. I forgot to do that in the film write up but it's it's worth checking out because it's about him going back to Hong Kong after trying to make it in Hollywood. You know, Lee had a tough time in Hollywood in the 60s. Yes, he got to play Kato in The Green Hornet, but they canceled it after one year. And he tried to he developed the series Kung Fu and they, the studio gave it to David Carradine because they didn't think uh, an Asian person could star in a TV show. And he had uh, one good scene in Marlowe and whatnot, one not-so-good scene, but so it frustrated. He he had a lot of walls that he uh, couldn't break through at that time. So he goes back to Asia, goes back to Hong Kong, and signs with Golden Harvest, which had just come uh, an offshoot of Shaw, the Shaw Brothers. And... Uh, comes up with The Big Boss in 1971. So that's, that's where we start. And, and like I, I jokingly said to Chris Lloyd, I'm going to review each disc individually as opposed to reviewing all the discs at once because that's a, that's a complaint people have about martial art films. They, they only attack you one at a time. But uh, The Big Boss... Uh, has is the story of uh, bruce lee's character who gets a job at an ice factory that we find out has shady business practices. They are selling heroin on the in their blocks of ice, which is interesting because ice is clear, so you could see the stuff that they're the nefarious items that they are selling through their ice and uh, as as certain workers start to ask uh, questions, they wind up getting killed and buried in the ice as well, so that 's not the most perfect thing. What's interesting watching the story is that Lee's character shows up um, and doesn't fight until about a th- about halfway through the film. Um, and I think what happened, it was director Lo Wei, who um, it was uh, the a gentleman at the beginning of the film who does a lot of the fighting. Lee's character comes to town and has a, a jade necklace, and he made a vow to his family that he would never fight and uh, they they don't quite get into why, but that's just how it is. So the first half of the film, another guy does the fighting when um, when the thugs for the the boss of the company is coming to lean on employees and what have you. And by the way, it's James Tien who plays uh, the the guy who does a lot of fighting at the at the beginning and uh finally when a busload of thugs arrive to beat up some of the workers somebody bumps into Lee and breaks his necklace and he cannot stands it no more and it basically Lee's character takes over the second half of the film and that was that was kind of a move done by Lo Wei and and James Tien wound up appearing in a couple other Lee films but uh but this becomes the turning point so Um, the fight scenes with Lee are 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 great, and he didn't get to direct his fight scenes in this. He would have more of a pull in his other films, which we'll get to in a bit. But, uh, but yeah, once once Lee is able to start to kick butt and take names, it it's really exciting stuff. I, uh, it's not. Entirely perfect on the slip. You also have a romantic subplot that's, eh, and he Lee doesn't get to be intimate enough with, uh, with his leading ladies. I think that's obviously we're going to see these films for fights as opposed to love. Um, but there's also things like a groin punch backed up by the sound of a kettle drum, which happens quite a bit in these films in the seventies. Um, but it's it's a really fun start. Um. This was this was a uh, this became head and tails above the other martial art films that were going on at the time. Made Lee and immediately a star in Asia. Uh, so that's 1971. A year later, uh, he teams up with Loway again for Fist of Fury. So a clarification. So initially, when The Big Boss was released in the United States, it was released as Fists of Fury, plural. And then Fist of Fury, singular, was released as The Chinese Connection. I got to see both of these films in the theater as a double bill with my dad when I was in, uh, I believe, middle school, and uh, and I was always confused because because the big boss is the one that has the heroin dealing uh, through the ice factory. I thought that should have been named The Chinese Connection because of the play on the words, uh, the play on title of The French Connection, but. I didn't make the titles. That just happened. Um, in Fist of Fury, our hero, played by Lee, comes back to his uh, old. Uh, comes back to his hometown and his studio, where his master, his master teacher, has died. And uh, what? As soon as the uh, the the teacher master has died, um, rival gangs start to come and harass the school, including obligatory uh skinny glasses wearing feminine acting uh latch lechy guy so and this guy shows up in a couple other films um and there's there's more fights in this film from Lee there's more uh, as far as and also use of weapons um, it's a little bloodier it's uh, a little more violent I think than the big boss you do have uh, yeah more blood more of the uh, Bruce Lee token uh, cries and shrieks You also have the obligatory close-ups and zooms. And as I'm going through my notes, swords versus nunchucks. Um, So that, and there's also a really cool Butch Cassidy moment at the end of the film. So the other thing about this collection, and I'm happy to say, and there have been a myriad of video releases for these films, but this is the first time I got to watch The Big Boss, Fist of Fury, and The Way of the Dragon, which I'll get to in a moment, um, subtitled, not dubbed, and uh, dubbing of kung fu films is something we've been joking about for decades. I, I remember joking about it as a teenager and thinking I was the first one to come up with these. Everybody does. Uh, every generation thinks that, and uh, and and those who really complain about reading subtitles, you need to get over yourself. But it there is a mental difference between hearing. A, a native language speaking or then overdubbing so and and I was really excited that this was a first for me that I got to experience these films fresh eye with fresh eyes and fresh ears. Each film in this collection has a four k restoration except for Enter the Dragon, which has a two k so um, interesting to watch these they look really good by comparison it 's not Apocalypse now or the Godfather, but if you watch these special features on these films, you also see the trailers. And you can see how, because these were prints that had been dragged from city to city, country to country. And a Criterion does a really nice job of cleaning these films up. So anyway, that that is out there. Um, third film, Way of the Dragon. This time around, Bruce Lee gets to write and direct, as well as star in this. And uh, this is, we've had the... You know, the the shady business films, we've had the Avenged of Masters death films, and now this one. And, and then I think what, uh, many films owe this plot to The Way of the Dragon. Uh, one that comes to mind immediately is Rumble in the Bronx, where a cousin comes f- travels from Hong Kong to Rome to help out at his cousin's restaurant that is being overridden by bad guys. There are baddies everywhere just coming and beating and tearing things up. So uh, Lee wanted to make what he called the Spaghetti Eastern. He wanted to take—this was the first Hong Kong film shot on location in Rome. Um, So you get the footage of of the uh, Italian countryside, or in this case, I should say the Italian city side, and this time around— um, Lee gets to play some comedy. Um, I think we're kind of used to him as a stoic fighting machine, especially in something like Enter the Dragon. But in this one, he's more playful. He, As he arrives in Rome, there's a fish-out-of-water tale. There's a, there's a great moment where he shows up to a restaurant and just kind of points at the menu. And then he we find out he's accidentally ordered four bowls of soup but he's going to eat his mistakes is like the first meal I ordered in Paris where it didn't come exactly how I wanted it but I was not going to return it and so anyway watching him uh mow down on four bowls of soup that's that's fun but uh but it's if he's more playful in this one there's uh you know watching Lee do some light comedy in way of the dragon and I forgot to mention in uh Fist of Fury he dons some disguises to uh, get information about the rival uh, rival uh, studios that are that are leaning on his studio at the studio he used to work at teach at learn at um, anyway but the fact that he got a chance to do some light comedy uh, a little bit is it, obviously he died way too soon and he's become one of the great what could have been in show business would he have he would have probably fared well if in the aging geezer action films when he was in his 60s and 70s so anyway the other thing about way of the dragon it's famous for is the final battle that takes Place It takes place in the Roman Coliseum. They actually got a camera inside the Roman Coliseum, but the actual fight itself was on a studio stage. But Bruce Lee versus then a uh, movie unknown, but seven-time U.S. karate champion Chuck Norris. So watching these two battle it out is worth the price of admission alone. But it's also a really good film. But, yeah... Um, seeing Norris in a silent role as the bad guy, as the guy who he has to fight at the end. And uh, no beard, because he has enough facial, enough body hair to make a beard on Norris's face. And this is, like I said, before Norris uh, launched his own film career. But two martial art gladiators fighting it out, and uh, it's really, really well done. Um, then we get, of course, to Enter the Dragon. So... His his big break, um, which unfortunately he never got to, to see the, the riches of the success of Enter the Dragon. It is more of a Bond film than a martial arts film. It, it's a spy film that happens to have a lot of, uh, of martial arts in it. Um, but it still holds up. This is, this film has a special place in my heart because I've grown up watching it as a kid. I made my wife watch it when we were dating. It was also the first R-rated film I had Emma watch. Um, the Story on that was she really enjoyed Kung Fu Panda, and then I later showed her Rumble in the Bronx, and and my pop culture Atticus Finch got the worst of me, and I said you have to watch Enter the Dragon. So anyway, um, I, I it's like it has been talked about multiple times, but it's uh and I know Warner Brothers, Robert Klaus and Raymond Chow, who uh, they co-produced with uh, Warner Brothers and Fred Weintraub. And uh, Robert Klaus, the director, they they paired Lee up with sort of uh, Jim Kelly, who would get his own film a year after this, Black Belt Jones and John Saxon, who's been in a myriad of things. Uh, But this is really Lee's show. I think Lee was was concerned about uh, getting pegged as the sidekick or the third level guy with his uh, American co-stars. And uh, there's two versions of Enter the Dragon in this Criterion collection. There is, the, I believe, the 99-minute version, and then there's the uh, special edition. This is also the one that's on the Warner Brothers uh, collection, if you have that. Um, that spouts a little more philosophy. So there's a little more of Lee's uh, philosophy and attitudes about martial arts. It's not just about kicking ass and taking names. Um and I also want to make a special point. Speaking of aging fighters, the guy who plays Master Han was sixty when he fought Lee in his film. So he's still, it he was still hoofing it out there um, into his sixties. That that's. You know, salute to you, sir. Uh, but I, I still, it's still my favorite martial arts film. I know my buddy Jenny would think would bring up Five Fingers of Death, and there's nothing wrong with that as well. So yeah, Enter the Dragon still holds up. It's still great, and uh, I also remember seeing it at midnight at the Music Box Theater in Chicago. I believe it was all guys in the audience, which makes sense, and you know, we walked out of the theater about 1.40 in the morning, all doing the Bruce Lee's screams and all thinking that we could take down anybody, one at a time, of course, not, not in a group. So um, this is followed by Game of Death. So the story on this is Lee wanted to make a film about a former martial arts champion who is nudged into pulling off a heist his family is held captive so he's forced to do this heist that lands at the climax of a of a pagoda and he is forced to fight his way literally to the top to rescue his family and uh it was supposed to be 10 levels it turned out to be 5 and he uh, Lee started filming this before Enter the Dragon, so he we got to see three level. He filmed about f- almost fifty minutes of material, including the three fight scenes that Lee has with level one, level two, level three, for lack of a better comparison. The most famous fight is him and his former real life student Kareem Abdul Jabbar, and we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so as he was filming this. Word got that he was able to make Enter the Dragon. So he shelved the project, made Enter the Dragon, and after Enter the Dragon, I think it was a month before he died, in fact, the anniversary of his death is coming up next week, um, had his uh, brain trauma and died. So between his death in seventy three. And this film's release, Game of Death in '78, a slew of what was called Bruce Platation films came out of the woodworks in Hollywood and in in Asia. And there's a great uh, documentary feature in on the supplements of this collection talking about the Bruce Platation films, as well as a couple of Bruce films which I'll get to in a minute. Golden Harvest, who had put out the first three films, not Enter the Dragon. Um, it seemed like for a long time they were not going to do this. They were not going to cash in on this, but they had the footage. And so finally, in 1978, Robert Klaus, the director, and Fred um, and, and Raymond Chow basically took Lee's store, took Lee's footage, scrapped the story, and this time and then brought in a myriad. I think it was three physical doubles: one that could do acting, one that could do fighting, and the, another one that could do stunts. If I remember right. This time around, Lee plays action star Billy Lowe, and he's filming uh, footage that what turns out to be the end of the fight scene from uh, Way of the Dragon. And he's being harassed by the local syndicate. The local syndicate in Hong Kong is run by old Academy Award winner Dean Jagger and his, his one of his minions, a, uh, a dangerous uh, walking stick-wielding Hugh O'Brien. Uh, Colleen Camp plays uh, Billy's girlfriend. She's a singer. She's also the, well. She's basically the damsel in distress in this picture, and uh, and and Gig Young, another Academy Award winner, also his final role before his uh, his tragic death, uh, plays a newspaper reporter who's a friend of Billy and his girlfriend. So they use this. Footage uh, at the very very end the the 11, they actually wound up using eleven minutes of the forty nine fifty minutes that Lee actually shot um, as i as i mentioned there's there's a lot of actors of uh, three doubles that are backs to the camera or dark sunglasses or there and there's even disguises which we 'll get to in a second but probably the the worst looking attempt is uh a scene early on where hugh o 'Brien is harassing the billy character and uh basically they put a cardboard cutout of lee's face on this actor's face on in fact and it it looks really really bad and uh and it got to a point where I think they, they just stopped trying to disguise uh, the Devils that were playing Billy. But they still threw in reaction shots and uh, secondary shots of, of Lee and other films, whether they matched or not. Most of the time, it doesn't. Uh, Camp Actually, Colleen Camp does sing in this. In fact, at the beginning of the film and the end of the film, it has a title sequence that looks like a James Bond film. And also maybe help. it does help. That the score was done by John Barry, the man who did the James Bond theme. So that looked cool, and we'll get through the fight scenes in a little bit, but we, we get through a lot of disguises, and there's this ridiculous point of Billy's character is shot by an assassin who poses as an extra in the film that Billy is playing acting in. They're recreating this end scene from uh, Fist of Fury, the kind of Butch Cassidy Sundance Kid final image where he leaps in the air, freeze frame and is riddled with gunfire. This moment has not aged well, especially because Bruce Lee's son Brandon died from an accidental shooting on the movie set of The Crow. So that just adds to the ickiness of watching uh, *Watching Game of Death. Um once we get to the fight scenes themselves and and there i mean there are fight scenes throughout and it's somebody else imitating lee's uh, screeches which are not the same as Bruce Lee's actual screeches and noises. But uh, once we get to the three levels of fighting, that's pretty cool, especially the one with him and Jabbar. The whole point of the Pagoda thing was that you have to adapt to your fighting style to whoever you are fighting. And in this case, it's a seven-foot-tall basketball player who would later become a pilot in an airplane. Um, <clears throat> so I, as a younger person, I, I think I deemed this the worst film ever made because I was young and, and full of vinegar. Um, because of the treatment of the material, because of the disrespect of Lee. The, also the fact that... Um, so after they, they the Billy character gets shot in the face by this assassin, lives, they fake his death so he can put on a, a bunch of disguises and find out who his killers are. And they use actual funeral footage... Of Lee's funeral in Hong Kong, it's it's a it leaves a bad taste. It's uh yeah it's if I remember yeah in the Bruce Plotation uh, documentary I believe yeah Grady Hendrix refers to Game of Death as tacky cinematic necrophilia and he's he's not wrong, but it's not the worst film ever because of the eleven minutes of footage we actually of fight footage we actually see with Lee, and yeah the 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 John Barry score and the Bond opening and, and Colin Camp singing the song in the closing credits. So it actually resembles a, re- a legit film. Um, it's just spoiled by all this uh, stuff that happens throughout. So, uh, yeah. And and also the fact that there, there are a number of commentary tracks for each film, uh, especially the gentleman who did the ones for Shout Factory for um, Game of Death, Fist of Fury, Chinese Connection, uh, no, and Way of the Dragon. And, uh, and as bad as the film is, it doesn't lower my uh, opinion of the box set because I wanted to know more about how they pulled this off or why they pulled this off. I know why, but uh, but what they had to do in order to try to cobble together a Frankenstein monster of a film that is Game of Death. So Criterion does do that. It does it does show you um, what they what they had to go through to create this. Um. So that's that's the four. That's the five, and then there were two extra discs of supplements. So uh, and that's I'm I'm that guy. I'm the guy that read that goes through all the special features. Um, because there's two commentary tracks on Big Boss. Then um, talks about the several different cuts of the film, and um, the fact that you had it in English and Mandarin and Cantonese. Um, but uh, so anyway, that the commentary tracks were really good. And fun and informative. Um but as I mentioned earlier, so the fifth the sixth disc has um a couple of these Bruce Platation films. So Game of Death comes out in seventy eight. Three years later uh, Golden Harvest puts out Game of Death 2, more from Raymond Chow, more Bruce Lee footage, and even footage of him from younger films when he was a a, a child as well as a teenager. This was also known as Tower of Death. This also has the bad dubbing on it as well. Um, this time around, Billy's brother uh, comes in the town to avenge his brother's death, and they show the funeral footage again. Um it's yeah, it's not cool. And and they um, the Billy character dies thirty five minutes into the film, and then Billy's brother comes out, and then they make just another inexpensive uh, kung fu film. The other one that came out this the, so you had the Bruce Playtation films. You also had the Bruce Playtation documentaries, and there was one from nineteen seventy three called Bruce Lee: The Man and the Legend uh you had a you have a voice you have a narrator who sounds like he should be doing a Rankin Bass cartoon than actual news footage and it's a slew of news footage of both funerals there was one done in Hong Kong there was also one in Seattle which was his final resting place so we get to see Linda and his children and um the the line of you know the hordes of people that were outside um, if you blink you, you you'll miss ca- cameos of uh, news footage of George Lazenby, James Coburn, Steve McQueen, Chuck Norris. A lot of footage that I, I think that the filmmakers begged, borrowed and stole and didn't ask for anyone's permission. And that that's the gist of of Bruce Lee the Man and the Legends. Not not fun. Um so we we get that and then um, we get into the Bruce, as I mentioned, the Bruce Bruceploitation essay, which is done by Grady Hendrix, who I've seen do a number of these. And it's only 10 minutes. It could have gone an hour and a half. I would love to have heard more about these Bruce Bruceploitation films because th- some of them are pretty damn ridiculous. Uh, but um, – there's also uh, an interview with Andre Morgan, who is one of the producers of Golden Harvest, the movie distribution company that put out the films I've already mentioned. I would love a full-length documentary about Golden Harvest. Um, Blue Exploitation I mentioned. Uh, there's also a cool interview with two English actors who were two of the guys that did the dubbing for the Kung Fu films in, in Hong Kong back in the 70s. It's a thing called Matched the Lips. And then uh, The Grandmaster and the Dragon, it was an interview with a gentleman who uh, – who uh, taught Lee early on as far as his ma- style of martial arts? So it's, it's. I started it on Saturday night, late Saturday night, and I finished the collection, what was it, th- uh, Wednesday evening, and wrote this up for the Film Me Up on Thursday morning. So it's well worth it. This is what I've been waiting for all summer and enjoyed the hell out of it and uh, really worth it. And now I, d- I don't have to buy any more Bruce Lee films ever again. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at WFYI.org. Once again, kudos to the Criterion Collection for putting out the seven-disc collection, Bruce Lee, his greatest hits. If you're a fan of action movies, especially martial art films, obviously this is a must-grab. Watching this again... Uh, there was somebody that mentioned early on that uh, they, uh, an old producer in Hollywood back in the 60s didn't think uh, martial art films would go over well in Hollywood because people fought like John Wayne. Well, how do they fight in The Matrix? They don't fight like John Wayne. They fight like Bruce Lee. And, yes, if you're a fan of these films, especially uh, Enter the Dragon, I, I also have to revisit A Fistful of Yen from Kentucky Fried Movie in 1978. You're welcome. All right. Grab a pencil. We're going to get to your stuff in a minute. But at the Tibbs Drive-In, in the ongoing attempt to get people to go to the drive-in by showing old movies, that that would be the way I would want to go um, if you show me some old titles, and uh, and some of them are. So at the Tibbs Drive-In on screen one this weekend, the Muppet movie, followed by Labyrinth. Brian, Monica, BB, there you go. Uh, screen two, you have The Outpost, the new Rod Lurie film, followed by Followed. Screen three, they're showing both volumes of Kill Bill at the Tibbs Drive-In. And in screen four, you have Palm Springs and Relic, which I talked about on last week's show. Over at the Skyline Drive-In in Shelbyville, you have the Muppet movie and the Dark Crystal happening this weekend. Uh, over at the Can Can Cinema, you have to at eight o'clock on Friday night the uh, online screening and QA with the cast and writer and director of It's a Disaster, starring David Cross and Julia Stiles, director Todd Berger. There's a Sundance Masterclass on Monday, July 20th at 1 p.m., as well as a webinar from Sundance. Um, at 3 o'clock on Wednesday, July 22nd. And then uh, January, Tuesday, July 28th, Visual Films and Conversations, Welcome to Chechnya at 7 p.m. You can go to cancanindy.com for all the information over there. And, of course, the Indie Shorts International Film Festival is happening now. You can go to heartlandfilm.org slash indie shorts. As far as uh, tickets and all that information, I do want to give a shout out to my buddy Selena Webb, uh, also a graduate of the Ball State University and Barn Rats for Life. Uh, she has a film, uh, along with Sammy X Six, written and directed called Four Rows, which is a part of the festival. So, congratulations, Selena and Samantha, for being a part of the Indie Shorts International Film Festival. Gotta get you on the show sometime. Anyway, that is happening. Over there. All right, friends, grab a pencil. Let's see. Let's hear what you've been watching over the last week. We start, as always, via email by my buddy Eric, who's still going through Season 2 of Mad Men. Tell Joan to call me. Uh, his re-watching this week was 1961's Mysterious Island, which he dubbed as good, as well as the 1953 film version of War of the Worlds. Good plus, and the criterion version of that, more more good actually wonderful as he calls it and uh bye bye birdie from 1963 tell ann margaret i said hello all right thanks there eric uh via twitter so uh surely not me says uh night comes on uh how i how had i not heard of it before so simple so good Tracy Forner, who's been on the show. Daughter and I watched Crimson Peak last night. Good call. That's uh, Guillermo del Toro and Doug Jones, who's been on the show. And I need to revisit that with Emma as well. Uh, JD writes, "Midsummer, Not bad, but overly hyped online. Uh, sure, I don't think so. Uh, Bill Reinhardt, who i got to get on the show as well. Force 10 from Navarone. Um, Howard's Ghost says, uh, Love Wedding Repeat. Watched this last night. Was pretty darn good. Uh, crafty Jen writes the original footloose and the various works of Peter Cushing, because Hulu said so. Yes. Essentially not essential replies. Greyhound. Um, Darren Dixon, Monty Python and the Holy grail. Leslie writes the old guard and Jess mercy. So, and when I wrote that, I, uh, was showing my daughter, uh, reality bites, Tracy foreigner, always good for a line from a movie. asked me, what is your glitch? So, um, Yeah, that's happening uh, over—that was over on Twitter. On Facebook, here we go. Nick Rogers, who's been on this show, writes Capone, The Grudge—that's the 2020 version— Palm Springs, Hard Boiled, The Half of It, and Bad Education, from 2020. Jenny writes The Old Guard. Jenny also writes Fast Color. George writes Lots of Shorts on Dust, Great Sci-Fi, Beginner's Guide to Dating in a Parallel Universe, and Lovely Monster are a Couple. Bonnie writes, The Old Guard and Cat Baloo. Devin writes, Elf. Joe Allen writes, Call Northside 777. Catherine writes, um, The Old Guard, Lovebirds, and sawd- Stardust. Not Sawdust. Uh, Josh writes, The Taking of Pelham 123. Which one? As well as The Patriot. Megan writes, The Old Guard. Um, Ed writes, Checked out Tom Hanks' new film uh, on Apple Plus called Greyhound. Joe Shearer, been on this show before, The Beach House, You Cannot Kill David Arquette, of course you watch that, the first two diehard films, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, Palm Springs, I Know What You Did Last Summer, Greyhound, Blood Quantum, Vivarium, Relic, A Perfect Host, Inheritance, John Lewis, Good Trouble, Bad Education, The Vast of Night fell asleep during an early morning bloodshot yesterday, so I only saw about half of it, so it doesn't count yet. Well, we tell each other this. Um, Lou writes, uh, Lou Harry, Kate Ballard, The Show Goes On, and Gloria, A Life. I stuck to only those with colons in the title. Thank you, Lou. Nice colon. Uh, Carrie writes, What We Do in the Shadows and Moana. Michelle writes, Shakespeare in Love and Men in Black. Mark writes, The Mustang Judy writes, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Darren writes, The Greatest Showman, Bye-Bye Birdie, and Hamilton. Sam Watermeyer writes, To Die For and Red Dragon. Dustin writes, Thelonious Monk, Straight No Chaser. Way to go, Dustin. Uh, Selma, Straight Outta Compton, and We Are Your Friends. Nancy writes, uh, So Many, All of Me, No Country for Old Men, Stripes, Auntie Mame, Dr. Strangelove, and Jaws 2. Taylor writes, Point Blank, Dread, Harvey, After the Thin Man, Dogma, The List of Adrian Messenger, Batman, Mask of the Phantom, Sleepless in Seattle, Charlie Chan, The Trap, The Spy Who Dumped Me, Twins of Evil, Hammer Film, and GOG. Taylor, I I own Twins of Evil on Blu-ray, so I'm glad you got that. Roxanna writes, I watched an Angelica Houston movie I had never seen before, The Witches. What the holy hell was that? So bizarre. (laughs) Yes, yes, Rox, it is. Uh, Marty writes, The Running Man. Eric writes, Starship Troopers Troopers, and V for Vendetta. Both were first-time views for me. Congratulations, Eric. Uh, Mary writes, The Original War of the Worlds. Uh, WFYI voice, Abby Terzini writes, Airplane. (laughs) Diana writes, The Old Guard. Paula writes, Mad Max Fury Road. Dave writes, What's Up, Doc? Why Him? And Clear and Present Danger. Rachel writes, Some Like It Hot, One Child Nation, Young Detective, D, The Rise of the Sea Dragon, and John Carter. Uh, Spencer writes, My son and I watched the god-awful recent Fantastic Four movie, which is just a mess. I told him about the 1990s Roger Corman version that was not released in theaters. We watched it on YouTube, and while the effects are laughable and the performances and dialogue textbook definitions are schlocky... Of the four live-action Fantastic Four movies, it's the only one that shows respect for the original material. It respected the comic books. None of the others have. That is their failure. At times, especially when Dr. Doom's bumbling henchmen are on screen, it seems to be trying to match the tone of the 1976 Superman movie. 1979, which until Tim Burton's Batman was the only comic-related superhero movie to show any respect for the source material, including the three Superman sequels, which seem to purposely abandon all those things they had made in the first film successful. There you go, Spencer. Uh, Bill writes The Bookshop with Emily Mortimer, Bill Nye, and Patricia Clarkson. Bill Nye was splendid. Bill, I'm glad you saw that one. I, I saw that when it came out, and not enough people have checked that out. Uh, Teresa writes Legally Blonde, Little Darlings, Wonder Woman, and Wet Hot American Summer. Kip writes Just Two Films, 1776 and Knives Out. Michael writes uh, The Monuments Men and A Mighty Wind. Melissa writes It's a Disaster, The Lodge, What's Your Number? Duke writes, oh, funny, Watch Edge of Tomorrow, Twice um dave writes hannah and her sisters i'll give it a meh uh okay higher than that uh patty writes the spider woman and captain blood (laughs) don writes colossal interesting little film with a unique premise agreed don Uh, tom writes pete kelly's blues daniel writes the big sleep i was a mail order bride Ghostbreakers, uh Violette Noirceaire, pardon my French, Magambo, Palm Springs, Merci pour le chocolat, Dinner at 8, Bombshell, Jean Harlow, The Pajama Game, Together Again, Red-Headed Woman, The Americanization of Emily, Christmas in July, Mucho Mucho Amor, and Christmas in Connecticut. Cassandra Writes Midway with Woody Harrelson, Mandy Moore, and other greats. Emily Writes The Princess Bride. Mandolin writes, Eurovision, 310 to Yuma, and Young Guns. Chuck writes, Bottle Shock. Gregory writes, The Untouchables, The Hateful Eight, and The Old Guard. Kim writes, It was grandson week at the at the summer camp, so we each had a movie pick night. Jumanji Jungle and Jumanji Next Level for Elijah and Jeff. Apollo 13 for me. Aw, thanks, Kim. Uh, Tony writes, We did theater on film this week. The An all-female Julius Caesar, Indecent, SpongeBob SquarePants the musical and a rewatch of Hamilton. Uh, Joe James writes Avengers Affinity War, Curse of Frankenstein, Corridors of Blood and Greyhound. Uh, Mia writes, uh, Maya writes, sorry, uh, Ford vs. Ferrari, Greyhound, Disclosure, Eurovision and Pocahontas. Liz writes, Netflix's Old Soldier. Amazing and I typically hate action films. Um, Liz writes, Juliet. Okay. Uh, Chris writes, rewatch Brokeback Mountain for the first time since seeing it in theaters. Such subtle heartbreak and so much emotion in the silence between Jack and Ennis. The score and the cinematography are just amazing, too. Uh, I, I'll i forgive Ang Lee for Billy Lynn's long halftime walk, home, I suppose. Also, a quick change, a Bill Murray classic and his only directorial credit. Chris, I'm, I'm glad you brought both those up because I remember seeing Brokeback at the Keystone Arts Theater the week they opened. And uh, this week in the AV Club uh, online, the subject matter is uh, films involving Saturday Night Live alum, and they do a nice write up on Quick Change. Julia Ricci, hey Julia, um, original cast album Company, the documentary, and watch the documentary now parody Co op, good, good combo there, uh, The Lovebirds and Station West. Sarah writes, The Old Guard, I was so happy to get an action movie with a female lead whose crew wasn't just the five-man band trope where she is the only woman. I agree, Sarah. Kathleen writes, uh, I've mostly been reading. (laughs) Samuel writes, sometimes I don't read ahead, folks. Uh, Samuel writes, The Circle, interesting look at what it's like to realize you're stuck in the middle of a river and don't like the direction it's going, but then using its power and inevitability against worse outcomes. Uh, Ryan writes The Platform. Julie writes An Affair to Remember. Jay writes Watch Bohemian Rhapsody last night, also rewatching Band of Brothers. David writes uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Godfather One, and Poltergeist. Tell Joe Beth Williams to call me. Uh, Benjamin writes uh, Classic queer coding has been the theme for me. Tea and sympathy from here to eternity and Dracula's daughter. There's a triple bill right there, Benjamin. Uh, Brian writes Hustlers, The Old Guard, and The Fifth Element. Joe writes Greyhound, The Informer, 1935, and the Denzel Washington version of The Equalizer. Kelly writes Hamilton, The Guest, Creep, Creep 2, Insomnia, and Meet Me in St. Louis. Jackie writes Greyhound and Palm Springs. Christian writes "Uh, We watched The Old Guard, enjoyed it, and want a TV series out of it. Uh, Grace writes, a crip camp in honor of Disability Pride Month and the 30th anniversary of ADA. That's right. Uh, Allison writes, only loved it, though it was a bit on the nose during the current pandemic. The the remake of Last House on the Left, I had to turn it off. It was way too graphic. I don't want to watch the graphic rape of a teenage girl. Understood, Allison. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Hated it. Can't figure out the Oscar noms, but I'm not a Tarantino fan. I am sorry. Not really. Anyway, um, Allison uh, also writes The Old Guard, enjoyed it, and The Autopsy of Jane Doe, good. Um, Britt also chimes in, I'm so glad I'm not the only one who yawned our way through Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I usually like Tarantino movies. Uh, Molly writes, An Evening with Beverly Lynn, Eurovision, Fire Saga, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and Sweet Land. Frankie writes Marriage Story and Waiting for Guffman. Kane writes I Am Number 4, 2008 Rambo, Identity Thief, and Stuber. Scott writes uh, both Zombieland films. Laura writes Room. Janet writes The Last Movie Star, Our Souls at Night, The Original Stepford Wives, Up in the Air, and Coneheads. Uh, Jim writes Jojo Rabbit and Captain Fantastic. Chris writes 2005's Idiocracy. I also have to imply. I also have to add. Always, you mean the the documentary Idiocracy from Mike Judge? It's all the timing, folks. Uh, Stan writes Palm Springs, Simon, the new Charlize Theron one, yeah, Speed two, and Jojo Rabbit. Rachel writes Midsummer, and and then adds, you know, I watched because I meant to see it in theater forever ago, but I also wanted to watch because of the dress and because she looks vaguely like me. I adore you, dear Mrs. Holden. That's an inside joke. Uh, Anne writes "Knives Out" and "Little Miss Sunshine." Nice Tony Collette double feature there. Um, Becky writes "I Tanya" and really enjoyed it. Joel writes "Honey Boy," "Vivarium," "Killer Joe." Ooh, hope you weren't having chicken while watching "Killer Joe." Uh, Jay and Silent Bob reboot and "The Goldfinch." Brett writes. Brent writes disclosure: the Netflix documentary required viewing. He says. Carrie writes uh, "Click" and "Fried Green Tomatoes." Tom writes Columbus. Kirk writes Inside Job, the documentary about the 2008 financial crisis. Also, The Monuments Men. Abby writes The Witches, Midsummer, and Million Dollar Baby. William writes Vice, the film about Dick Cheney. Susan writes Jaws with Riff tracks. Hilarious. Good call, Susan. I might see if I can talk Emma into watching Jaws with me with Riff tracks treatment. Um, Stephen writes, uh, John watched, he also tells me what his, his partner is watching. John watched Particle Fever. We both watched A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. He liked it. I almost went in the sugar shock. And also Horton Foote's 1918 with Matthew Broderick. Not enough people have seen 1918, uh, Stephen. And I, of course, gush over Horton Foote whenever possible. Uh, writes, uh, Queen and Slim... Judy writes uh, The Last Gold, a documentary about women swimming at the 72 and 76 Olympics when the forced doping of East German swimmers emerged. Uh, Britt writes with her list Clash of the Titans, the original Clash of the Titans, Jumanji, The Next Level, again, The Old Guard, Mucho Mucho Amor, Frozen 2, Moana, The Live Action Lady and the Tramp, Mulan 2, Mission Impossible 4, Ghost Protocol, Jurassic Park 3, Jurassic World, again, The Witches, Life of the Party, and Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. David writes The Lion King. Mike White, uh, Mike, hi, Mike White. Mike writes More Cinema Novo. Michelle writes Newness. And Gary writes uh, Good Night and Good Luck. And uh, I, I agree with that. All right, folks, so there you go. That's what you've been watching over the past week. So I hope you uh, hope you took some notes. I hope you check out something that you've not experienced yet, as well as fall back on uh, old titles that are familiar. Cinematic comfort food. Nothing wrong with that. Friends, some words to live by. Silent breed is people! Zardoz has, has spoken. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. There's plenty out there. and And go to the drive-in if you can. So hope you're staying safe. Hope you're staying healthy. Hope you're staying sane. Hope you're listening to doctors and scientists, and uh, be good to one another, if you would. And uh, we'll we'll chat again. I'll chat to you. I'll you can grab a pencil again next week. We're going to end today's show with a little more music from Lalo Schifrin from the soundtrack Enter the Dragon. This is the uh, this is called Prologue the First Fight. This is the opening fight scene between Bruce Lee and uh Samo Hung. So uh, thanks for listening. Take care everybody. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at wfyi.org. Good afternoon Fort Myers. Good afternoon California. Good afternoon Michigan. I can't believe you let her watch Manos. Is (laughs) she scarred for life? Let's put it this way. When I I... parent are you? (laughs) When I wake her up, I vocalize the theme to wake her up to get her ready to school. Oh, you're a terrible father. (laughs) We'll do it live. Okay. We'll do it live!